Sword in Court with Mike Trevelyan and Dean Sheridan. Hi everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Holding Court. Holding Court is the podcast where we discuss legal cases, laws, things of that nature, crimes, and I discuss it with my good friend Michael Trevelyan, who is a barrister, a practicing barrister. He's not retired, his career is still on the line. And uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I am it your hangs other host. in the balance every time we hit the record button. <laughs> Yeah, I am your other host, Dean Sheridan. I just have a, a laptop and decided I wanted to do this. So somehow I'm <laughs> on a legal podcast. How are you, Mike? I'm very well, thank you. I've got a real craving for a banana, um, which is unusual. I must be having some sort of potassium deficiency. But um, yeah, apart from that, I am I'm very, very well. Um, went to a wedding yesterday, which was nice. Um, good to have a kind of another sort of gathering of people. It's um, still not quite normal yet is it i think to have big gatherings you still feel quite lucky to have them so it's good it's good how are things with you uh they are fantastic uh tyson fury beat the crap out of deontay wilder the other day i'm sorry if we have any wilder fans on here but i am a fury fan and i was happy with the result last night but it was a great fight overall it was tense to the last so that's exactly what you wanted so i'm pretty ecstatic i was up to the early hours of the morning because obviously we're English and uh, it was on American time so to us it was about 6am by the time the fight had finished or half six. Yeah see that is one of the problems I think with being a boxing fan is the late nights because I like to be in bed at half past 10 and you know I really think I mean I'm quite a fan of football but I think even for like a good football game I'm not sure I would stay up and watch it because it's just too late. Could you not like go to bed and then just get get up in time for the match? I mean, I used to when I was working in the mornings and Game of Thrones was was good before it absolutely shot the bed. Um, <laughs> we used to, in the last series, it used to come out at, I think it was like 1am or something like that. And it it would come think. on to TV. So I'd go to bed, I would sleep, and then I would get up, come down, watch that episode of Game of Thrones and go back to bed in time for work. Yeah, I suppose if I was, yeah, I suppose I probably could do that because I've done that for a few midnight cinema things that we've been to, haven't we? Um, sort of got an early night, had a few hours and then, you know, gone and watched the film and gone back to bed. Although when we went to go and see Endgame, I did not do that and I fell asleep in the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it swings around about. I was thinking about boxing and I wanted to run an idea past you because I think I've invented Boxing 2.0 okay. and I think it's going to be big i think it's going to be great so what you do is you take a normal boxing match right yeah and you know um those machines that professional like tennis players have that shoot tennis balls so you can practice your your swing i I think i can see where this is beginning to go but continue (laughs) (laughs) so you get one of those but it's large enough to shoot out like you know there's like dodgeball balls yeah so it shoots that and it's only like maybe once around or twice around, but randomly. So both time and direction is entirely random, but it's shot into the ring. And I think that could really spice up boxing. Because imagine like the two boxers are fighting, what, you know, Mr. A is on top. He's kind of doing really well. And then suddenly out of nowhere, blam, dodgeballs to the side of the face and he's knocked out. Oh, so it's during a fight while he's already fighting another, another person. Yeah, yeah. So it's just an added element. Of oh, chaos. okay. All right. I, I, for a minute there, I thought like you just got one guy in the ring who's occasionally being shot at with a ball, and I was like, 
doesn't sound as interesting. So basically, no. what you've done is you've taken boxing and you've added the inclusion of a firing squad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think um, it's going to be a big success. <laughs> well, there you go, guys. We were straight down the patent office after this. Sorry, by the time you've listened to this, you will not be able to steal a million, <laughs> a billion dollar idea. <laughs> yes, boxing 2.0 is going to be huge. So I will go on to our first case. Uh, we're going to start with China. So um, this is about the video game laws in China. Have you seen these the updates and things that have been happening recently in China? I have, yes. The uh, rather fickle Chinese government have turned their minds to gaming, I understand, and they have limited by law people's gaming to, I think, three hours a week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, it's between, I think it's 8 and 9 p.m. And I don't don't think it's everyone. I think it's just children at the moment. Ah, Um, But I know that a lot of things come in. So, yeah, they have limited the time that children can play on, it says online games. So whether, you know, if they've got an old PS2, they can really track them playing, you know, Crash Team Racing or something like that. (laughs) So it's just to stop them becoming addicted. And so in some ways... I mean, I, I don't agree with it, but, um, you know, you can see having that little bit of, of control to stop people becoming addicted to gaming. But at the same time, is that not just the job of the parents? Again, it's it's government taking over the role of the parent rather than letting individuals do as they wish. Yes. I mean, I, I have a suspicion the Chinese government are rather controlling. Um, and um, it seems to me that this is the sort of thing that, you know, wouldn't uh, get off the ground in many other countries. But I mean, it's worth saying, because you mentioned um, that it's it's online games. It's worth saying that, as, as I understand it, this isn't just a kind of law that, you know, unless the police come and break down your door and see you playing a game, you can basically just carry on. No. Uh, they've done such a thing where they have a sort of control over the internet, such that if you actually, you know, go on your phone to play a game outside of the mandated hours, um, it will literally come up with a pop-up saying, you know, you are not allowed to play this game at the moment and it just won't load. So um, it's very much a sort of practical thing uh, rather than just a sort of one of those laws that's never really going to be enforced. I also find it kind of annoying that if it's from 8pm to 9pm, I mean, I get that means that, you know, you're going to have full servers and it's going to be a great time. But at the same time, you know, why can't they just have that hour sort of sporadic throughout the Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? Why does it have to be that specific hour? Why can't? Why, maybe maybe it's just that's easier for them to control. Whereas if they if if you know someone had that set hour and their their different device would stop the game if they went over it, but that just seems kind of annoying. I mean, they must have good servers to for the surge of people that will be online between that specific hour. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of those things that, you know, if it were to be translated over here into this country, um, which obviously would never be, but if it did, I think one of the big things would be exactly uh, how you sort of mandate that hour, because I suppose it makes sense to kind of think, you know, uh, an evening uh, or an hour in the evening after work great that's a sensible time for a game but of course then you would have people saying well I work nights and I want to do my hour of gaming at four o'clock in the morning or whatever so that's the equivalent for me so yeah it does seem odd and it also seems odd uh, as you say that you you can't kind of you don't get like an hour's credit that you can just kind of spend throughout the course of the day I think that would be better you do sort of you know 20 minutes here 20 minutes there um, rather than thinking, right, you know, this is this is my one chance. Uh, and as you say, they're just overloading the servers terribly. 
Um, now, I, I agree with you. This is obviously um, a bad thing. But just as a kind of thought experiment, looking at it from a legal point of view, wh- why is it wrong? What do you think, Tim? Why is it wrong? Because yeah. it's because it infringes on on any of your freedoms, especially to put it in like that. And also, the addition is that in order for them to be able to to you know mandate that hour, it means that they're already invading probably in other aspects for them to be able to do that, such as monitoring your internet and things like that. Would mean that they, I think that they have that they basically can see everything that you're getting up to. I mean, I know they have that social credit system. And so, therefore, it's already an infringement. You're basically being monitored. It's not like just a credit, like you say, it's just a credit that you got on your phone. I think it like infringes on your human rights. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think, you know, it's a slippery slope. They'll be telling people how many children they can have next. Um, but <laughs> I think um, you are right to say this is a kind of human rights issue, isn't it? I think one of the reasons why we couldn't have a law like that over here would probably be because of the Human Rights Act. I'm thinking of kind of Article 8, the right to respect for your private and family life. And I think if the government mandated certain activities that you could and couldn't do that were generally harmless, um, I think there might be an argument that that is an infringement of your private life. Having said that, there is a risk of addiction, like you say, and the government does, in this country, mandate things that you can and can't do so you know sale of alcohol is an obvious example um cigarettes fireworks uh, all the fun stuff is uh, is restricted so it's interesting isn't it because it sounds completely wrong-headed and the the initial reaction i think we both had was you know this is completely inappropriate but then when you kind of see it in the same category as other addictive things in a sense it's weird that it's not controlled so, by the government that's it's maybe, actually an exception i can understand to a certain extent with online gaming especially some games like uh like Fortnite and things like that that are literally made to be addictive to younger people and take up all their time also you've got those micro transactions and the amount of money they could be spent in games as well like online games that like every year when they bring out a fifa and and everyone wants to get like was it the is it fut i don't know what, what it means I don't yeah it's FIFA. the ultimate team I think, ultimate yeah. team yeah and then they um they spend lots of money on it and they don't know what they're getting and and they do that in, in lots of ways so i can see why you'd want to stop that sort of like gambling addictive side but like let's say you just want to sit down and play the last of us it's a bit of a different experience and, mm. it, and I, I think it just comes from an understanding of video games yeah i think that's right so i suppose because gaming now cuts a very wide swathe doesn't it hmm. and so i suppose in that sense it's not the same as regulating you know alcohol or gambling or something like that which is all fairly similar uh, in terms of the activity. Um, But it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, if alcohol was discovered today, I suspect the government would ban it or would certainly regulate it very strongly. And you kind of think, well, is is this restriction on gaming um, just something which is seen as a kind of response to something relatively recent? The thing is, I'm pretty sure that most of the addictive online games that are created come from places like China. Like, was it Genshin Impact is a Chinese yeah. company? That's, that's those like, are just words I don't know. Genshin, yeah, Genshin Impact is is uh, a, a game. I think you can get it on like your consoles or you can get it on your phone. 
and it's like a, a big MMO, so a massively multiplayer online game. I think that's full of like microtransactions and stuff, and it's, it's massive, and it's from China, and I think some of those sort of mobile games are. So it kind of feels like they're like, all right, we'll send it over to make loads of money from us, but our kids ain't playing it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that that's right. A lot of this stuff is, is produced there. So, yeah, I, I suppose I can see that. I can see that, but... Yeah, it does strike me as as odd, but the more I think about it, the more I see this as a actually an exception to an otherwise fairly well established rule that certain addictive things should be controlled by yeah. the law. I mean, I, I guess I guess I just feel think from the, the point of view where I I would be like if it was my child or some people I know with children, you just stop them from going on it that much or set a time limit or they have a set time when they go on it and it's set within the household, and therefore. It's just like, like I say, I think it's more the government getting involved and doing that. But then again, there are there are people that I'm well aware of that will uh, raise their their kids are raised by tablets or by video games uh, because it keeps them quiet. Yes, well, that's right, and it strikes me as well. You see that that argument of allowing you know parents to regulate these things, you could apply that argument to alcohol, couldn't you? You could say, why do we need to restrict the sale of alcohol? to adults when um parents can just make sure their kids don't drink yeah i guess it's just it's that rule isn't it there's like we're well aware that there are idiots out there so we can't we can't run the risk because there's too many stupid people yes that is true as is so often the case it just sounds stupid stupid. people ruin shit for everyone mike (laughs) i want guns and alcohol any time of day (laughs) and due to stupid people shoot people or give kids alcohol, ruining it for me. Exactly. I want to drink a bottle of tequila and fire my assault rifle in the air, and I don't see why the government should tell me that I can't. But when our new world order comes in. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, we are rapidly filling up seats in our uh, world government to come, so we will have a minister for firearms and gambling and alcohol. So uh, I'll just put it out there on the podcast now. China, if you're looking for any partners, uh, there's a new world order starting up over here. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting small, but it's going to be massive. Yeah. Um, I also, uh, on this on this um, question of China, and I'll be very brief, I am getting increasingly concerned about the extraterritorial power of the Chinese government, by which I mean the Chinese government doing things outside of China. And I can't remember if I've discussed this with you on the podcast before, but recently the Chinese government imposed sanctions on uh, some barristers, actual proper economic sanctions, diplomatic sanctions on some barristers here in the UK who practice in the UK. And they imposed the sanctions because the barristers have been instructed to, uh, I think, give an opinion on a uh, it was something to do with, I think, the sort of these barristers were instructed to give an opinion on, I think it was a something to do with the Chinese occupation of somewhere or a, a claim to some territory or something like that. So it's a politically sensitive thing. And they gave their opinion to their client and the Chinese government imposed sanctions on them. So these people are now not allowed, I think, to travel into China. They have sort of economic sanctions placed on them if they tried to do business in China. As far as I'm aware, they're not particularly bothered to actually do anything in China. Um, It's more of a symbolic gesture, but it's pretty weird that uh, the government are doing that. So in that context, 
um, come and get us for doing this podcast, Chinese government. <laughs> we will yeah. take you on. They will do. When the Chinese when the Chinese take over, we are first on the fire <laughs> in the firing line. But yeah, it, it is a, a whole weird situation, um, and it's just blown up in sort of Hollywood's face, who have been pandering to them for many many years to make their box office there and um china just brought out a movie about uh, a small battle that they won in the korean war against the americans and it's uh absolutely sold out any movie that's gone over to china before <laughs> so uh, i did not know that I'll yeah that, that came out i think it was like the other week it's like massive. i mean i don't know whether people were mandated to go watch this film hollywood should probably just stick to you know just making films that are good and then yes. if they manage to get into China, woohoo. If not, then who gives a fuck, right? <laughs> well, that's right. So our official line is, don't pander to the Chinese. Hey! Hey! That was terrible. <laughs> okay, so we'll move on from, from uh, our hot water with the CCP, and uh, we'll say to Mike, it is time for you to take over. Yes, I'm so sorry. I forgot what we were doing next. Um, yes, so this is the second uh, crack, I suppose, at um, our new segment, What Happened Next? So for those of you who are newcomers, uh, this case, uh, or, or rather this segment involves me bringing a case to Dean's attention by reading part of the official uh, court judgment in a case and then asking Dean what happened next. And today's case is the case of Parker and the British Airways Board. For those of you playing along at home, the citation is 1982, uh, second volume of the Weekly Law Reports 503. Um, the judgment is of Lord Justice Donaldson, and uh, his lordship says this. On November 15th, 1978, the plaintiff, Alan George Parker, had a date with fate, and perhaps with legal immortality. He found himself in the International Executive Lounge at Terminal 1, Heathrow Airport, and that was not all that he found. What happened next, Dean? So, so I'm just thinking about what, what, what's, the, what's the name of the case again? Uh, Parker and the British Airways Board. Okay. So he's in the first-class lounge, and whatever he's doing is against the British Airways Board. So we know this is a, a civil case, uh, as, you've, as you've identified. Um, so it's Mr. Parker suing the British Airways Board for something. Did they just, is, is he like really snooty and they let a load of just like trampy people in? <laughs> you know, he, he had his first class lounge and he's just been like, this is, this is not good enough. I, I bought a first class ticket and you've upgraded the clumps. <laughs> um no i'm gonna give you no points for that because that is wildly off the mark um last time i think you got three and a half so this time you get zero but that's fine that you can't can all be winners it's, it's not um, it's not a badger is it <laughs> <laughs> oh i should have got one with a badger that would have been brilliant <laughs> okay um yes let me let me uh reread with what happened next so in the judgment it says um, he found himself in the International Executive Lounge at Terminal 1 Heathrow Airport, and that was not all that he found. He also found a gold bracelet lying on the floor. We know very little about the plaintiff, and it would be nice to know more. He was lawfully in the lounge, and as events showed, he was an honest man. 
Clearly, he had not forgotten the schoolboy maxim, finders keepers, but equally clearly, he was well aware of the adult qualification, unless the true owner claims the article. And this was quite an interesting case, really, because it deals with something which I think happens quite often. Mr. Parker had uh, been in the in the lounge. He had seen this uh, gold article and uh, the gold bracelet. He gave it to an employee of the British Airways Board. And he also gave the employee his own name and address. And he said, look, this bracelet isn't mine. Uh, if the true owner comes and claims it, then obviously it should go to them. But if nobody does claim it, here's my name and address, and it should be returned to me. Nobody did claim it, but uh, the British Airways Board did not return the bracelet to Mr. Parker. Instead, they sold it for £850 and kept the money. And so that's why Mr. Parker was suing the British Airways Board. He sued them for the £850, the value of the item. So what this case deals with is the question of who owns uh, an item which is effectively discarded and what rights does the finder have um, as against other people. So Mr. Parker was successful. He succeeded in suing British Airways. He got his money back on the basis that uh, there's effectively a hierarchy of rights and the true owner obviously has the most rights. They're entitled to the item. But if the true owners abandoned the item or lost it, then the person who finds it has rights in it. And the employee of British uh, Airways and British Airways itself had effectively no rights at all, simply because the item was found on their property. Uh, they don't get any rights over it. And so they were not entitled to sell Mr. Parker's uh, bracelet that he found. So that's why he was successful and got his £850 back. So if you happen to then find this case, right, and then you go, oh, crap, I let, that's where I dropped my gold bracelet. Could then someone take Mr. Parker in the hierarchy and then sue him for the £850 and get that as the original owner? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I would say probably not, um, because I don't think Mr. Parker's interfered with... The true owner's rights. I'm not sure. See what the claim would be against Mr. Parker, because he's exercised his own rights properly. Um, the true owner could probably have sued British Airways. Actually, yeah, that would have been the remedy. That would have been the one to sue British Airways. So yeah, so basically, he gave the gold uh, bracelet over for them to sort of keep an eye on in case this person came back, and if they didn't, here was his details to call, and then yeah. he would have come and collected it himself. But then a little greedy person was like, "Oh yeah, yeah I'll do that." Slipped it when they sold it. Well, yes, exactly. And uh, what the court said was that Mr. Parker's rights, the rights of the finder, and um, could only be displaced by British Airways if British Airways could show as the occupiers of the, the property, occupiers of the land on which the bracelet was found, uh, an obvious intention to exercise such control over the lounge and the things in it that the bracelet was in their possession before Mr. Parker found it. And uh, what they said in court was that on the evidence, there was no such intention by British Airways. They had never become the occupiers. Uh, forgive me, they'd never become the possessors of the bracelet. 
um, and therefore they weren't entitled to sell it. That is interesting. I'll keep that in mind in future when finding things out on the street. That's pretty good to know. I'd say, I mean, it's one of those things that does happen not uncommonly um, that you will find, you know, something abandoned and the question becomes what to do with it. And I think Mr. Parker, to be fair to him, um, did pretty well for himself, didn't he? He acquitted himself quite well. I mean, he handed it in. He was quite happy for it to be given back to the original owner and um, was happy to, you know, wait and see what happened to it. And then he got the worth of the bracelet. And speaking of worth, <laughs> see that? That was a good segue, wasn't that it? Was, that, that, was uh, <laughs> that was That was flawless. And we'll lead us into our next case, which is Worth. So Worth is a, a film that came out this year uh, starring uh, Michael Keaton. It's a biographical film, supposedly, Although when I watched it, I was like, yeah, this is definitely, some of it's definitely a bit OTT. And a guy called uh, Kenneth Feinberg, who had a, a legal team who had to take a, a fund from the government and for the victims of 9-11, uh, so the people who died in, in 9-11, and try and find uh, a reasonable payout for each individual. And he uh, originally started with some sort of, what was it, like uh, an algorithm or something that he created that would allow people uh, that would specify by their jobs, etc., how much money they got. And then he sort of changed it later on to, to really take people at an individual basis. And then they, they've made this film. So, Mike, I believe you have watched this film now as well. I have. I have. Um, thank you for bearing with me for a few weeks. Um, but I did watch it. Yeah. And I'm, I've been fascinated to talk to you about this, actually, because I don't know very much about film as a genre. Um, and you know a huge amount about film, so you're much more informed about film than I am, uh, whereas the position is perhaps different when it comes to law. So a film about the law kind of plays to both of our strengths, mm. and uh, I was very keen to hear what you thought about it from both a legal and cinematic perspective. And I thought it, it was an enjoyable film that sort of could have got its point over in about two minutes but they stretched it out because it's around a powerful thing such as 9-11. So a quick review of the film is, yeah, Michael Keaton, he's quite this likeable, he's got like a Boston accent, I think it is, he's sort of uh, lawyer, and then he he gets this job and he's very like, it's a job no one wants, but he's going to do it because someone has to do it and it's for the victims. But then some of the victims, you know, don't like the way he's distributing this money. And then there is a uh, another guy, uh, Stanley Tucci uh, plays him. He's a fantastic actor as well. I forget what the character's name is because it was a couple of weeks ago I watched it, but he's like, gathering lots of the victims together to not sell out to this this fund till it's done properly and he sort of gives michael keaton a hard time trying to uh, get him to see each of these uh, individuals as people and then there are the side the, the the more cinematic dramatic moments which are the side plots about some of the victims and their families so for instance there's a there's a very good one about is worth talking about about a gay man whose partner died in the towers who isn't going to receive any money because this guy's parents the guy who died in the towers don't accept that he was gay 
and didn't and didn't um, accept his lifestyle, and therefore they're still in denial even after he's dead, saying, "Oh, this guy is just after money. He's got nothing. Our, our son's like a ladies' man." I mean, I don't know how dramatized that is for the actual film. Even though this man was the last person that was called from the tower, that this the guy who died uh, called from the tower, so he was using that to try and say that was proof of his sort of right and that they lived together but he never got anything from that uh so that's an idea of sort of the side plots about the kind of people that they were dealing with another one is uh, a man a fireman who died in in the tower and uh he's he's got secret children that his wife didn't know about and then it's about the fact of getting his wife to sign off on the money um so that all of his children, including the uh, illegitimate ones, receive something from the fund. So, yeah, so it plays on that emotional section. It has a lot of, like, sort of talking heads within it that were quite good. It's well acted. Michael Keaton is amazing in it. But I did find Stanley Tucci's character just to be an annoying knob. <laughs> like, he, he wasn't, because yeah. he, he just, he didn't really seem to have anything really much to say. Like, if you actually think about the, the level of what you know, he, I know he was sort of. You got the idea he's standing up for all these people, but every time he came in to talk, it was just riddles. It was just bollocks. Like oh, it, this is as simply as what it is. For some reason, it took him six months after talking to Stanley Tucci a bunch of times. Stanley Tucci turned around and goes, "Just look at everyone individually," and then Michael Keaton just goes, "Wow," and then that's it. That's really all that happens. He originally had like a a set thing, like a, let's say an algorithm. Or whatever it was, I forget what he, what the exact wording of what they used. Um, yeah, they had a sort of formula. Didn't the formula, they? They formula. That was it. That was things using. like uh, you know the the deceased person's income, and then they would kind of work out what the uh, I suppose loss of earnings was from the premature death, and I think that was largely how they were then going to quantify the damages. But, but this is the film in two seconds. I had a formula. Everybody's angry. They don't want to sign off on on the formula, and we've got a certain date. Why do I look at everyone individually? The end. Yes, I agree with you completely. I very much got the impression that this was the kind of film where, you know, whoever wrote it or whatever heard this idea of, you know, the lawyer who had to value human life. And the kernel of that idea, I think, is quite interesting because the question which you think the film is going to ask is how do you value human life? And that's an interesting question. But it, as you say, it's not really the question that the film did ask. Um, it rather more just looked at, well, we're going to change from a, a formula to an individual assessment. And you think, well, that's that's fine. And, and they somehow stretched it out into a massive... I mean, I know he's written a book, this Feinberg, and that is what it's meant to be based on. Um, and he does the whole thing in the very first start of the film. He's, he's, he's obviously a, a tutor, um, and he's teaching his class. And he does a sort of small outline of what is human life worth and, and stuff like that, which is an interesting section before then going into this. And that's probably about the closest you get to that. But yeah, the rest is, is just very human drama. But like I say, I don't know. I mean, obviously these are real people and I know he must have had an effect, the character that Stanley Tucci's uh, played, but he just seemed to be causing issues and with no real, he never really gave much back i felt that when he was saying stuff he wasn't saying anything until right at the end when they went to like an opera or what looked like some absolutely rubbish bit of <laughs> theater contemporary to the extreme and uh 
and then he just sort of just tells him to look at him individually and then they have that magical moment at the end where they've got like 10 minutes left until the fund is gone and they need to hit a certain percentage of people to accept it and magically just you know all these letters are coming in and it was just like it was one of those really cheesy and that's the bit where i'm like i don't think that quite happened like that i imagine (laughs) i imagine maybe if it was that close it was like a few weeks before like it didn't happen within an hour of the closing of (laughs) of the case yeah Yeah, i mean that bit reminded me a little bit of um is it miracle on 34th street when the the you know the guy who claims to be father christmas and the postman delivers all of these letters and they're all addressed to Father Christmas and they're all, you know, they're all delivered to him, I think, in the courtroom or some stupid thing. Um, and, yeah, it was kind of a little bit like that, wasn't it? The postie suddenly came and there was sort of, you know, folders and folders filled with people that were happy to to claim against the scheme. I also did find the kind of central, um, I don't really know what to call it, the sort of central point of the film. Because, as you say, there was this compensation scheme and they had to get 80 percent of the people who had a claim to join this compensation scheme because basically what the sort of government realized was that the people who had a claim so the the dependents the family members of the deceased were possibly going to sue the airlines for negligence and you had fairly early on in the film a sort of meeting I, I presume it's the sort of you know, capital building and it seemed to involve some sort of politicians, representatives from the major airlines and also this, this lawyer. And it's a slightly sort of grubby scene, isn't it? Because they're sort of in this boardroom sort of thing, having a chat about it. It's a and real it's, suit sitting round worrying about money scene. Yeah. That's in exactly. most movies of that kind. Just, just yes. to give you the idea that all these people are morally corrupt in some way. Well, that's the really interesting point, though, isn't it? Because that's exactly what it does. Because what they say in the course of this scene, the politicians and the airlines say to the lawyer, uh, we need to get 80% of the potential claimants signed up to this scheme, because if we don't, the economy is going to crash, because the airlines will be bankrupted, and it will just destroy the economy. So that was the underlying reason for this compensation scheme. Save the economy, save the airlines. Now, I, I, you know, you're slightly hamstrung, I suppose, by the fact it's based on a true story. So what can you do? But unlike, you know, those heartwarming scenes in films like Miracle on 34th Street, you kind of thought, yay, that they've got up to their 80 percent. Hooray for the airlines that they are now not going to go bankrupt. Yeah, and it was a kind of slightly awkward tension, wasn't it? Because you had on the one hand this kind of, you know, this sort of grubby backroom deal element but then fundamentally, that those were the people you were, you were rooting for because you kind of found yourself invested in whether or not they were going to get to this 80% threshold. But then you thought, well, the only reason that's relevant is because it's going to save the big businesses, which um, kind of struck me as a slightly odd thing to be rooting for in the context of a, a film that's ostensibly about the value of human life. And actually, you find yourself kind of on the side of massive airlines and, and the economy. 
Yeah. But then throughout the whole thing, they're on about if you ever did go to court, it would never get anywhere and most people wouldn't get anything and it would be an absolute mess. Seemed to be what they were talking about throughout. And that's why sort of, that was sort of Michael Keaton's character's sort of drive was he, he, he was almost saying it like so that you were rooting for him in the way that he was going, you need to take this. You need to have a, you need to take this compensation fund because and there's, there's this other evil lawyer guy or business guy. I don't know if he's a lawyer or a business guy, but he seems yeah, to be on the side. Yeah, I he was like a hedge fund manager. Or yeah, he was, like, he was like on the side of the very, very wealthy people that died that just weren't getting enough money. Um, and he just tried to like swab everyone up and, and get them all riled up. He was like, a, <laughs> I mean, if he's a real person, I mean, they've made him look like a right dickhead in this film. <laughs> and I'm like, and I was like, he's just trying to get everyone up so that they 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 won't probably make any money. They'll suffer for it, uh, uh, but like his 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 hedge fund people will be much the better. And that's Michael Keaton's sort of argument throughout it is he's saying, look, this is just free money. You just take it and there's tax free and there's no issues and that. But if you try and go to court, you're going to end up losing stuff anyway. And then I was thinking, so how would that, that, how would that affect the airlines then? Because if, if they're all going to lose it anyway, or they're probably not even going to make their money, you've just shoved a massive load of money together to give to them. I mean, I understand that that is how they should get something. But like you say, that their prime purpose seemed to be let's not let's not cripple the airlines and not let's make sure that these families are given money. Yes, exactly. And I think the problem that you then had with you know this, the the scenes where the lawyer is saying to the families, you know, you should take this money, and you know there'll be all sorts of litigation problems, is you don't then really know if he's telling them the truth because. Is that right? Or is he just trying to get them to sign up to the scheme to protect the airlines? And then again, you come back to this slightly odd thing of kind of finding that you're rooting for the for the airline owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not sure that he's actually telling the truth to these, you know, families of bereaved people. I, I think that's, that's the big thing when it comes to true stories in films and the liberties that they take. In the film universe of this, everything is is clean and perfect. And he he meant what he said. And it was like, you know, there was no ulterior motive. And like, you know, like when he, one guy gives him a contract basically and says he'll sign everyone over, but he needs to give a stupid amount of money to the really rich people that died. And he has this whole like moment where he like pours a, a drink over the contract and like walks out and he's like, I'd rather everybody got nothing than I signed this, which is pretty much exactly what he fucking did. He just played with everyone's fucking money and went, no, they either get nothing or the millionaires don't get their extra 500,000 or whatever it is, which is a bit of a fucking weird thing. But um, yeah. Yes. There was also a a rather odd thing. And I, I don't know. I only thought about this in retrospect and I may be wrong, but do you remember the scene? Because uh, as you were saying, there's the illegitimate children of one family. And that kind of subplot is introduced through a phone call that the lawyer gets from another lawyer. And the other lawyer is representing the illegitimate children. So he phones the, the lawyer who's the main character. And he basically says, look, you know, I'm not trying to cause problems for you, but there are these extra children. And therefore, the money that was going to this family is to be split amongst you know, five children and a partner, not three children and a partner. That was the kind of idea. And that scene happens when the lawyer, uh, the main character lawyer, is walking on the beach with his dog. And there's a really odd element to the scene because he's walking with the dog kind of, he's just getting onto the beach. So he's walking over a sand dune when the phone rings 
and the phone rings and he sort of struggles to answer the phone and he sort of trips over the sand dune a little bit and he's on the phone for a couple of minutes and the dog is gone the dog sort of run not runs off but sort of he doesn't keep a hold on the dog's lead and there's a scene where the dog just kind of wanders off whilst the lawyer sits down on the sand dune and has this phone call and then the scene ends and i don't think you ever see the dog again <laughs> and so i don't know if that was deliberate if there's some sort of symbology to that um but it seems as though he just lost his dog on a beach i, I wouldn't say i wouldn't say there's anything smart or sy- symbolic to that I, I, I wouldn't i would it doesn't seem like the kind of film where you'd read too much into the to 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 the missing dog well, if I was doing a GCSE, you know, analysis uh, for an exam question, I would say that the dog represented or was was symbolic of the lawyer's uh, idealism and naivety in administering this fund, which when he gets the phone call about the illegitimate children, um, he suddenly realises that actually this is going to be a much, uh, much more heartbreaking thing for the families to deal with than he had realised. And so the dog runs away and never returns. <laughs> and they That's just, just cut, cut out the scene of the dog drowning in the sea. <laughs> but it's really weird because it's not one of those things where he's got the dog, you know, he's he's got the lead and then sort of, you know, he's just not holding the lead anymore. There's a whole sort of long shot where he lets the dog go and, and then, the dog yeah. sort of wanders out of the scene. So and it's it, not and even he literally reaches things. a stumbling point, stumbling block in this case and, and stumbles. So maybe, maybe, maybe it is yes. this one massive... Maybe you have really read into that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Maybe there is a lot more to this. Maybe it merits another uh, another watch. But um, yeah, so it. And the other problem, the other, I, I, I was quite, ba- I was quite down on this film, as you can probably tell, because I felt as though it shied away from the question I wanted it to ask, which is, what is human life worth? And I think if you're going to call your film worth, that's the question you need to be asking yourself. But I did enjoy it. But I think it immediately shot itself in the foot with that scene that you've described where he's giving a lecture on how you quantify the value of human life. It's literally the first scene of the film. Yeah, and I get it because it establishes his credentials as, you know, why is he the guy that's then in charge of this fund subsequently? But what it also does is it basically tells the audience right from the beginning that this is a question with an answer. So... You know, the question it poses is, what's the value of human life? Answer, you know, you can go and look it up in a textbook or come to one of these lectures and we'll tell you. So that kind of deflated <laughs> deflated the central question because it's it's already been de- decided. You know, yeah. you well, do use an algorithm, you do use a Stanley Tucci got in the way and, yes. and co- caused him to have to go to it a different way where he was quite happy to just go along with, with, with what his plan was in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's literally. I mean, what did you think of Stanley Tucci's character? And I mean, I thought he was a great actor, but I thought like there was nothing to it. Yeah, I thought the performance was really good. I I did find, I do agree with you. I think he was a, just a very deliberate, quite clumsy, uh, you know, wrench in the system. He was he was just there as an obstacle for the lawyer to overcome. But there wasn't really any conflict. There wasn't really any drama. Well, yeah, because it felt like Keaton kept saying, "Look, what do you want me to do?" And I'll mm. do it. And Stanley Tucci just kept getting annoyed with him for asking the question, mm. and basically was telling him that he needed to go on some sort of fucking soul search. Yeah, absolutely. R- rather than like... just just tell, he's like, "Tell me what you want me to do." Well, if you don't already know what you wanted to do, 
then you can't possibly do it. And it's like, look, Stanley's asking you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell him. In the end, he tells him anyway. <laughs> In the end, he just goes, oh, you're still struggling with it. Just look at people individually. Like, oh, right. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was like having a sort of pensions advisor who is also the Riddler. And you think, <laughs> you know, just, just tell me what I should be doing with this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that did strike me as slightly clumsy. And it was just that kind of thing where, you know, the, the film needed a conflict. So this guy was going to create an obstacle that then just sort of disappeared. Yeah. And I felt that the main conflict was him and the, the sort of hedge fund manager. They were the main conflict. Mm. That was the real thing. Yeah. And again, evil versus good. Like there's even a grubby scene in a boardroom with him when they're trying to, where they, they, they do like this juxtaposition of, of really poor people who are being given like 200,000 for like, oh, they're really poor people, but like the cleaners of, of the, of the trade center, their families and stuff are being given like 200,000. And they're like, Jesus is more than, and he's like, no, it's each. And then they're like, amazed like this is more mm. than we ever thought we'd get and then it keeps flicking between that and keaton talking to these people um about like their employees who had died and they were like you know big business and uh they're not happy with the amount that they were being given and that's where the complaint comes in yeah i mean i agree i thought that was a really good scene because there was i think right at the beginning of that meeting with the um with the sort of cleaners and, and all the rest of it the family the cleaners there was the sort of reference to, you know, making a claim on this fund will not have any impact on your immigration status, you know. So there was a kind of suggestion that they might be illegal immigrants, certainly sort of towards the bottom rung of society's ladder, very vulnerable people. And then, as you say, you know, that was juxtaposed with, with you know, the, the big hedge fund guy saying, you know, $20 million isn't enough money for my clients kind of thing. So that was that was really good. And I thought, actually, a much better film <laughs> would have been to take the individual claimant cases and just just show us them and just go through them yeah how were the calculations done uh how was it worked out what did these people get yeah, and what it does it doesn't show you anything then past that apart from the general or that's another thing like i say they just generally went we'll take each person individually but then like see so you get you get no sort of outcome to mm. anything properly it's just that everyone just starts agreeing and you're thinking, yeah, it would have been nice to have them sit down. You hear them tell some of, some of their stories, but you don't see how they're making any judgment on what that story means to the other. But I would also like to, because uh, we'll probably have to move on in a minute, but I, I could talk about movies all day. So also, if, if there's any other legal films that anyone knows of, you want to email in, we're quite happy to review them. We but should I, watch I, My Cousin Vinny, actually. <laughs> I've never actually um, seen that, but I know that's illegal. It's Joe Pesci, isn't it? Yeah, I watched it as a kid. I don't really remember it. But I was doing, when I, when you qualify as a barrister, you have to go and do what's called the new practitioners program. And part of that program is to go on a, a weekend away with other newly qualified barristers. And you are trained by much more experienced barristers and QCs and judges. And you're, you're kind of given like a final polish up as a new practitioner before you're kind of let loose. And so you have to do advocacy exercises. And the person who was teaching me my advocacy exercises on one of the days repeatedly made reference to my cousin Vinny as genuinely a good film to watch to be a more passionate advocate. So there is there is a genuine sort of legal uh, benefit, probably more from a, an advocacy and, and um, sort of practical point of view rather than necessarily getting into you know what the law says in particular things but i think that could be quite a fun film to watch so well, that, we should def- start a uh, holding court film club yeah that's uh that's definitely on the watch list now i love joe Excellent. pesci so just quickly before we move on from this i just want to go back to 
uh, and maybe you can say if it was in the UK, but obviously it's also 20 odd years ago, the rights of the partner of the gay man who died, the one who called him and he was the last person he called, he lived with him, but his family deny his existence or the fact that their son was gay. Because they, they make a reference in the film uh, that someone says, York, basically he doesn't get any money in the end, but the the lawyer that was dealing with him says, I'm really sorry. And she like cries about it. and she, But she says, your case has helped us with other ca- similar cases of how we look at it. And they've got money. Whether that's meant to make him feel better, I don't know. So where would that stand? I mean, I think it's a bit harsh that you got absolutely nothing or, or had no rights. And I don't know if things have changed since then. Obviously, it's America as well in, in regards to same-sex uh, couples and relationships and their rights. But it seemed pretty clear if he had the recording of the phone call and the fact that they lived together, that they were, in fact, a couple and that they were, in fact, uh, you know, and he's basically last words are admitting it, whether his parents deny it or not. So I just found it weird that he wasn't able to get anything. But like I say, that could just be the law at the time to do a same-sex marriages, which is quite different today. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... There are a couple of different ways in this country that we deal with claims arising from death. Uh, But one of them is to make a claim under the Fatal Accidents Act of 1976. And you can get a a bereavement award under the Act. And Section 1A of the Act uh, extends the the, the sort of category of people um, that can get one of these bereavement awards. Uh, So it's wife, husband, civil partner, or the parents of an unmarried child. So nowadays, I don't know, actually, I should have probably looked, I don't know whether the civil partner element was a amendment to the 1976 Act. Obviously, it wouldn't have been in place originally in 1976, because there wasn't such a thing as a civil partner. But I don't know when it was amended in um, to the to the Fatal Accidents Act, I should have looked. But certainly now, uh, as of today, um, a civil partner would be entitled to one of these awards if they were a, a dependent. Well, um, what would count as a civil partner? Is in like literally they went and had a civil partnership or like, like, cause in, in this film, they're, they're just living together. They're a couple and they live together and they're obviously, you know, boyfriend and boyfriend. So is that, would that ever be enough to have a claim? Yes. I mean, what, one of the definitions of dependency in the act. So in addition to civil partners and former civil partners of the deceased, a dependent can be any person who was living with the deceased in the same household uh, immediately before the death um, and had been living there for at least two years before the death. And they were living during that period as husband and wife or civil partner. Um, So I think I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think what that is intended to deal with is people who are living as civil partners, not who are, in fact, civil partners, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll have to double check that, though. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but um, that that may that may well be the situation. Um, but I'll look into that, and I will let you know more next week, Steve. I just thought that was one of the most unfair uh, points of, of the film, but obviously that's why it was raised in the film, because it was a, a bit of a, a an emotional wrencher. And uh, I was just thinking to myself, well, it was 20-odd years ago that, you know, would would, it, would he have a better chance? 
today would that be less of an issue because he basically it was his word against the parents who were just like yeah he, he, you know just saying just completely denying that their son was gay even though there's uh audio proof that they were in a relationship and i just found it a bit weird that he didn't get anything but then i was like i say i was thinking well, it was 20 odd years ago a lot lot changed in that time so yeah absolutely yeah so yeah worth is worth a watch but it, it's definitely a sort of plot and story that i think is sort doesn't focus on probably the more interesting stuff from a dramatic point of view and some of the legal stuff seems like it could have been covered in two minutes um and they make a, a much bigger like, like, like you say they take that little kernel of what it is and manage to expand it into like a two-hour film so i don't know i think they could have focused on some other stuff and as much as i thought stanley tucci's character and, and acting was fantastic he just for me just seemed like a pain in the ass who didn't know <laughs> who, who didn't seem to even know what he wanted but yes. for, but, but, for uh, but for some reason had a massive following of the majority of the the victims so it i don't think it did enough to fully flesh his character out to why was everyone going to him like they go to a meeting that he does and they don't even analyze what they chat about in the meeting properly yeah that's yeah that, i mean there are some really weird problems with the way in which the film is done because it doesn't it doesn't focus on the right i think this is why it was i think i think fundamentally i found worth unsatisfying to watch because it doesn't focus on the right questions in my view it focuses on less interesting things. And then the things it does focus on, it doesn't particularly flesh out. And I think that was my big problem. Well, I'd say it's about, it's a mid-tier film. So I, with because the performances are good and there are some nice emotional, dramatic bits. Uh, but it, like I said, it doesn't focus on the crystal. So I'm going to give it five gavels out of 10. Straight down the middle. <laughs> um, yes, I, I, will, I will give it five gavels too. I'll agree with that completely. <laughs> okay so now we'll go on to our last section after that massive review of the film work <laughs> which i quite enjoyed and uh, we're on to a section that we like to call i call bullshit i call bullshit is the part of the show where i present mike with a case a crime an article of that nature and it seems a bit crazy too too weird to be true and then Mike will let me know if he thinks that it's bullshit or not. This is our little way of finding all those fake news stories that get shared all over the internet that uh, and finding out whether, you know, they are real or not. So, Mike, the line today, let me just uh, find it again, is Robber walks onto movie set, <laughs> sees extras dressed as police officers, and then gets scared and hands himself over. <laughs> You you introduce this one with a little twinkle in your eye, and uh, I, I I like to think that it's true. I'm struggling a bit though because I don't understand. You know, did the robber? Did he? Yeah, go? sorry, he he had just committed a robbery. Yeah, sorry, not ah, not just he's walking so. down the street and he remembered that time he stole a Twix when he was little. <laughs> no, no, what I mean is like it wasn't clear to me if he had gone to rob the film set. Or if he just sort of arrived. No, no, no. He just just committed a robbery and came across the film set to believe it was real and handed himself over. Yeah, I think that's completely plausible. I, um, yeah, I I think that's true. Yes, it is true. Yeah. So during the the filming of the film Leon, I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's called Leon, or sometimes known as Leon. Oh, yeah, because there's also a a chain of um, restaurants, isn't there, called Leon? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but I didn't have named after the film. <laughs> oh, well, they not. I thought they were like themed restaurants. <laughs> well, well, he was a hitman, so I don't know what the themed <laughs> restaurant would be. He drank a lot of milk in the film. He, he was always drinking milk, so uh, I, I don't know. Maybe if it's like a very milk-based restaurant, but I seem to think Leon is some sort of like patisserie-esque... <laughs> Was it you kind could be of like a cat a... cafe, and then they would have loads of milk? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. So um, once we've started our new boxing federation, boxing <laughs> two point we'll then move on to the cat milk restaurants. Yes, <laughs> Holding Court is going to be the biggest conglomerate this world has ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have our fingers in so many pies. Jeff be Bezos will be borrowing money off of us. <laughs> <laughs> will we ever go to space in a in a shuttle each? But yeah, so yeah, it was during the film uh, filming of Leon um, that uh, a man just robbed a store and he walked out, he countered the movie set by accident. He saw all of the police and gave himself up to a bunch of uniformed extras. (laughs) So that's that's the true thing. And then, so then I was, I was just like, that was just off the sort of like fact finding on uh, IMDb. I also heard it on another podcast and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So there isn't really much about the guy. But it is a it is a, a trivia, and I was just thinking um, whether anything like that has ever happened before. So supposedly there's someone from The Wire, a character from The Wire, uh, who played sort of a homeless man, and that was picked up by the police because they thought he was uh, <laughs> a real homeless man. And, and then I just thought how interesting that must be. Like if you if you ever out filming or something's happening, whether real police and that have ever got involved. Yeah, pro- and also you get a lot of actors that are that are method, aren't they? So I wonder if there's ever been a sort of, you know, somebody preparing for a role and, you know, they're hanging out on the streets or that kind of thing, getting ready to play a uh, a thief of some kind or some sort of other well, criminal. D- Dustin Hoffman slept rough for like a couple of weeks to get ready to, I don't know if it's a couple of weeks, but he definitely slept rough to get ready for the role of playing a homeless man. Oh, okay. Well, there we uh, go, yeah, yeah. But um, I just like... Would it just act? But, um, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's what what's this, they said, isn't it? Uh, Olivier, Lawrence Olivier said it actually to Dustin Hoffman. He said, have you ever tried acting, darling? Uh, <laughs> that's a cracking Olivier impression. Yeah. Uh, but also, but then, you know, I don't really think much of Lawrence Olivier as an actor. So <laughs> I know that sounds like oh, wow. most, okay. uh, that's quite the fucking statement. Yeah, but, Frank Sinatra couldn't sing for shit. I know he's great. No, he's just he's, he's of a different era. He's not my kind of actor. Dustin Hoffman in that ah, whereas Olivier, uh, he's just he's just he's just he's he's that era of big melodramaticness. That's interesting. I'd never thought of because, uh, as I was saying, you know, you know a lot more about film than I do. Um, I'd never thought before about acting evolving and sort of going through different phases. Yeah, well, when Method and that came in. It was a guy called Lee Strasberg, and as you might have heard, the Actors Studio in in New York. Uh, they would that's sort of like where it came about. It's people like Brando and that of that era really really started getting into that. And but it used to be you were a little bit over the top. So if you go back to some of the older films, you can see that in some of their acting, and especially in theatre where like Olivier came from. So maybe I'm being a bit harsh because I've never seen Olivier in the theatre, and sometimes being bigger is better on there sometimes there's a transfer to film as well but it's like a lot of the most famous actors that you know like gene hackman and that were not given roles because they're people like you're not even acting because it was so natural (laughs) 
And, you know, like, so they were like the new breed of like natural actors and stuff like that. But obviously, some of them did like crazy shit, like like say sleeping rough and that, or anything to get into that role. I don't think you need to always do that to to be that good. But then again, it worked for Daniel Day Lewis, and he's now like a three time Oscar winner. So you know, there's there's definitely method in the madness. No. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> So there you go. I mean, I wonder if like the reverse happened. So instead of a, a, a criminal walking onto the set and being arrested by fake police, someone was playing the role of a police officer, got so into it, he just got around like fighting crime. Just went power mat. Yeah. <laughs> At that time, Christian Bale just went around battering people dressed as Batman. <laughs> <laughs> that time, Henry Cavill died because he tried to fly off a roof, you know. <laughs> yeah, so it, yeah, you've got to be careful how far you take it um absolutely but um but yeah that's that's a really interesting thing i uh, i never realized that uh, acting evolved in that way and i agree with you it's possible that laurence olivier was in the end a passable actor (laughs) (laughs) you know it's a twenty thing to say (laughs) (laughs) he's got his own awards and everything here i am (laughs) sat in my office like he's just a hack Oh dear, take that, Olivier. We are gonna be we are shaking up the world of drama. Right. Um okay, all right, I'll leave it there for this week because we've had uh, quite a long recording. So uh, do you have anything to say before we go, Mike? No. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Short and sweet. So we hope you join us again next week for another exciting episode of Holding Court. Goodbye everybody. If you know of any strange court or legal cases you would like us to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at holding.court at outlook.com. <laughs>